music, odd music, wonderful music. Listen to Robot Pasta. It's freeform sprinkled with cheese. Served every Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. Right here on WCBN 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor. There are millions of people walking around today who can't tell their right from their left, who don't know the difference between red and orange, who have a difficult time even spelling their own name. There's a special term for people like this. We call them children. Give just a little time to your local Head Start, and you could help us make sure all children learn the early lessons they need. Nurture the future. Be a Head Start volunteer. A public service message brought to you by Head Start and the Ad Council. Don't place my name on your prayer list. Jesus ain't got time for me. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And today on the program, I am so incredibly happy to have Tom Zeller Jr. joining us from New York State um, in a small town near the Hudson River. Welcome, Tom. <laughs> Thanks, T. Good to be here. <laughs> um, and, and without further ado, I'm going to read your bio. Okay, uh, Tom? Great. <laughs> okay, here we go. Tom Zeller Jr. is an editor and writer for the New York Times covering alternative energy and green business. After a year as an editor-at-large for National Geographic magazine, Tom returned to the New York Times in July 2008. He spent much of the last decade as a reporter and editor covering various subjects for the Times, from technology and cyber fraud to culture and politics. He was also the founder of The Lead, the paper's news blog, in 2006. Tom has won several awards for visual journalism and multimedia reporting from the Society of News Design and from the University of Navarra, Spain, including prizes for a collection of essays and graphics lending historical context to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, an interactive reconstruction of the shooting of Amadou Diallo, and a multimedia documentary of a Louisiana plantation, part of the Times Pulitzer Prize winning How Race is Lived in America series. Originally from Ohio, Tom received a B.A. in literature from Cleveland State University and a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. Welcome, Tom Zeller, Jr. <laughs> Thank you. And thanks for the gravitas in your voice when you read that. 
<laughs> you mean the, the Cleveland part? Or <laughs> That's right. No, no, the whole thing. It's incredibly well, long, especially when it's read aloud. You know, it's true. I don't usually. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think. I think I've just given you the longest introduction of you know historically speaking on my stint here at Living Writers. <laughs> it was very painful. Thank you. <laughs> and if there's anything else I can do to make it painful during this hour, just you know, just let me know, Tom. <laughs> I, I will. It won't be hard. I'm sure. Um, so yeah, so we'll we'll spend a little time filling in some of the some of the the few gaps. No, <laughs> whatever was left out from that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, Tom, maybe we can start by by saying you're. It's 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 kind of exciting to have you on the program today because it's a departure. Um, some of our Usual guests include poets and fiction writers and and some nonfiction folks, but this I, you're my first person who's coming to a, to us via the world of you know the newsprint um, and and blogging, yes, and journal yes journalism <laughs> covering the main bulk of it. So, but let's let's rewind when when you were a kid. When did you decide that words were your thing? Uh, wow. I'm not sure if there was any kind of pivotal moment when I, you know, said, oh, I'm, I love words. And, you know, my career actually has kind of gone in a couple different directions that include, you know, visual narratives as well. So, I, I mean, I think I always had some kind of facility and or interest in kind of telling stories. And it was probably somewhere in, you know, late high school, early college, when I realized that, you know, it was going to be difficult for me to be, to choose to be one thing. I wanted to do so many things. I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be um, an astronaut. I wanted to be, but the, the easiest thing I thought for me to do would be to, to settle on journalism because you don't really, you get to be a master of a lot of different topics and, or not a master, but a, a jack of all trades, but a master of, of none, but you get to taste a lot of things. So I guess in college, you know, when I was getting my BA in in English, which <laughs> didn't promise a lot of of um at least not a sure path. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I, you know, it, I stood at the cusp when I was um uh finishing my undergraduate and and trying to decide what, you know, whether to go into literature, into English, um or or to journalism. I I applied to Columbia Journalism School and I somehow got in and that kind of the rest was history as they say was was uh, was that decision based on time spent writing for the the your Cleveland yeah. college, the Cleveland uh, State you know you know their paper or yeah some yeah I mean I I had done um, maybe in my junior and senior year there I had actually dropped out of college for quite some time if, um, for about five years. I did one year at the University of Toledo, and I dropped out because I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do, as most or many kids do at that age. Um, yes. And so I came back, and it, it, when I returned maybe at the age of 25, I was kind of like, okay, I really need to settle down and do something um, and make a career of something. And so maybe halfway through my undergraduate career there uh, as an adult, I, I took an interest in the, in the newspaper, although I wasn't as involved in it as you might think. I mean, I think I was always kind of going only with, you know, I was kind of letting the wind push me along. Um, I wasn't like driven like I'm going to be, you know,
know, I'm going to work for the New York Times. That was really the furthest thing from my mind. That's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. I, I mean, I feel humbled every time I walk in the doors there. I really do. Um, so with your time off then, Tom, were you... Were you um playing music or was it were you working more on the visual um, uh, aspects of I art was, or yeah no I was playing music and I was kind of drifting I went to I lived in Europe for a while and I taught English there um, oh which where in Finland Ooh. actually yeah um, and so yeah I spent some time there I got I got married in that mix um, and then came back and to the U.S. and got my undergrad. So I was, you know, I was kind of drifting through a lot of my 20s. And, and, and definitely non-traditional. Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say, and definitely non-traditional in a way. I guess so, yeah. Although, I, you know, I look back and I'm, I I'm certainly don't regret anything that I did. I, I'm amazed at, at people, at students who come out of high school and feel fairly driven or fairly confident in what, what it is they want to do. I mean, do you know? Did you know? No. <laughs> and look, Tom, I write poems, so do I really know now even, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, but poetry is beautiful and it's useful. But did you know you wanted to be a poem, a poet from from the get-go? A writer, but not yeah. not anything in particular. That's why I was wondering if you always sort of had your... Um, you know, your notebooks or your journal or you had, you know, yeah, some things that you, you were know, I mean, messing I think around. I anything I could pinpoint as a real, you know, as a kid, I, I like to draw more than anything else. I was really drawn to, you know, art. And, uh, you know, I would paint. I would made I made cartoons when I was a kid, um, little, you know, comic strips I would make up. What was one? What was, yeah. Oh, gosh, I don't know. It's, <laughs> <laughs> there's, well, um, there's one I remember I had a recurring feature, meaning that I would just draw them and show them to my family, um, called <laughs> Scenes of Signs Unseen. And they were just mm-hmm. kind of one-panel comic strips um, showing, like, the kind of comic results when somebody doesn't actually see a sign posted. <laughs> where, like, do not enter or something. So it, it was not very inspired. But So maybe someone from Green Inc. over at the New York Times is listening in right now, and they're thinking, well, now, Zeller, we're going to give you, you know, a comic panel to do. And <laughs> God, I hope not. About green <laughs> energy. Yeah, right. You'd be surprised. We actually get a lot of queries from, from cartoonists who want to do green energy cartoons. Oh, I don't know how you do that, how you make thing, the topic funny. <laughs> exactly. I suppose you can. The comedy of errors. Oops. Yeah, oh, no. Right, exactly. Another oil spill. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah that's a, a million laughs. But you were saying that then you, you went to Columbia and then that changed pretty much well, everything? That was it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, once I got into Columbia, I, I was... I mean, certainly I was investing a good deal of money in <laughs> going down this road. So to that extent, and I'm still paying it off, um, there was no turning back. And it happened very quickly. I mean, I finished Columbia, and I took an internship at the New York Times website, which was only a year or two old, I think, at the time. It was 1998. So there were very few newspapers that had websites at the time. And uh, I did a summer internship there and then uh, went over to the, the paper, actually, shortly after that. So, And that's interesting that you've 
because now your current role at the New York Times is is mm. you're still writing for them, but you're also an editor at, at Green Inc., which is um, ha- having a, a, its main life on on the web. Is is yeah. that true? I, yeah, I mean it's kind of come full circle. I mean when when I started at at the website, that it was in a different building from the from the paper. It was in a different you know part of Midtown Manhattan. Uh, the people who worked there didn't interact very closely with folks at, at the newspaper, and newspaper traditional journalists were very suspicious of what was going on there, and they, they tended to poo-poo it and, um, and and think that it was, you know, it didn't really have anything to do with them. And now, yes, of course, we're, we're all feverishly working to expand our online operations. The Times, I think, is at the forefront of that. And... And realizing that this is probably going to be the main way that that news gets delivered in the future. Although, again, I mean, it's hard to, yeah, I'm a little uneasy making even those kinds of predictions, as dire as things are with the print product. But certainly the website, the, the, the web itself is kind of leading the way these days. And why not? I mean, it's a it's a news operation where we're kind of conveying information, and you it, you can do it minute by minute online, as opposed to once a day in a newspaper. And which which um, it you started, which which brings me to the the fact that you were the founder of the 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 lead, um, which was the the initial attempt of the Times into the blogging world. Well, no, that's not entirely true. There okay. were there were blogs uh, that the Times had before. For that, um, they tended to focus on just very niche areas like politics or some area of the arts or perhaps books. Um, but they had not done a general news blog. I mean, the, the, the entire, I think, genre of blogging was considered something other than journalism up until maybe that point, or at least it was maybe it was only slowly changing at that time. So it was kind of a, a big deal for the Times to, to launch a blog that was exclusively dedicated to breaking news as it happened. Um, and was and that to, your brainchild, Tom, or was that something that within in-house meetings was being kicked around? It was, it was actually the idea of uh, John Landman, I believe, um, I'm not incorrect in saying that, who who kind of oversees the entire web operation nowadays. Uh, but at the time, yeah, I think it was his his idea to do this, and I think it was a great one. And they, at the time, I was, a, I was a reporter covering Internet technology and cyber fraud and that kind of thing for, for the business section. And John and I had a conversation about this, and it seemed interesting to me. Uh, and it was. <laughs> it was a baptism by fire. It's a whole another ball of wax to be writing in that in that venue. And with multiple postings per day and instant multiple, feedback. I, and I, I never wrote as much as I did when I was writing for the lead. I was writing, you know, on the order of, you know, 2,000 words to 3,000 words a day. Um, and... And sometimes even more than that, and monitoring, you know, an endless stream of of comments and participatory input from our readers, which was kind of a new experience, too. I mean, that's a whole new dynamic. I mean, you would get mail when you write for the New York Times paper, um, but it would often come as snail mail or later as email. Um, But even that was kind of slow. In comparison. what, (laughs) What happens on the blog, which is, you know, constant feedback. And a great thing. It was very instructive to me about how, you know, the give and take 
it, it, it always the newspapers had traditionally been and media had traditionally been about kind of feeding information um, and it's much more kind of uh, two-way street now there's a lot of kind of interaction between the readership and I think it's healthy yes and we're and it's a way to get new, well you know what let's talk a little bit more about that Tom we're gonna take a short break right now but we'll be back you're listening to living writers today on the program we have Tom Zeller jr. Uh, editor and writer for the New York Times uh, MT Hetzel we'll be back You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Tom Zeller Jr. is joining us from his home in New York State. Uh, <laughs> home in New York State. That's right. It's a big state. <laughs> it is. Um, thankfully, we're not living in the city anymore. Yes, yes, you you, you live in. I, well, your home is actually featured in in part of the the in, incredible video series that you're doing as part of Green Inc. That's Tom. right. That video series on uh, focusing on our home is thankfully done now. But it's a three parter, uh, right? <laughs> it was a three parter. I I don't know how I really got talked into it, but it did. You know, it made sense for what we were doing at the time. Um, and yes, our we we spent times. Uh, with a Times videographer shooting renovations that we were doing to our home to improve its energy efficiency. And and so that was so if if listeners would like they can they can go check those out and see you and Kathy say welcome to our new old home. Is that it? Yes. Is that the... yes. My wife Kathy featured prominently in the videos. Um I think she was a very popular character actually. <laughs> and um if they go to uh, Green Ink, just nytimes.com slash Green Ink, all one word, that's Ink as in incorporated, um, they'll find the videos there. And, well, 
So maybe some folks will be doing that, but yeah. hopefully staying <laughs> with us as well. Um, and so, so Tom, we were talking about the lead, your time there, because yep. you, you began in, in in 2006, and then your your final um, entry was March 7th, 2007, uh, right. at 6.50 p.m. Um, <laughs> That's very specific. And, yes, and, and that was, well, it was kind of interesting to me because I'm very much, I need to be more on involved in this and and open to it but it it seen that the number of um postings that you'd made that day and then people's individual responses to those um it's almost as if it's taken what used to be um like the personality of a columnist that yeah. that would run in, and and get put it put it on steroids basically um <laughs> It, it, in a way, isn't it? Because it's wonderful because there's humor in these pieces and um, it's really personable, which is not often what you're getting on in the the news ink pages. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good way of describing it, actually. To, it, it, it imbues, um, I mean, blogs are, are and have traditionally been a, a much looser form and a much more personal form, although I think now in the hands of, of mainstream media like the New York Times and and any other paper that's creating a blog, uh, it's taken on a lot of different kinds of personality. So there are blogs that are, are kind of straight news. I think the, the Green Ink, which is the, the blog I'm currently editing, um, is pretty pretty much straight news and not, uh, it's a group blog, we would call it, so a lot of people are contributing to it. But um, there are plenty of other examples like the lead where well that's even actually become a group blog but when i first started it it was it was just me and and that's true of a lot of blogs that the times has and you have to it was a different kind of writing i mean i i was under clear uh guidelines just being a journalist and working for the newsroom of the new york times that it could not be um an opinion um place it was not a, it was not a venue for me to kind of editorialize so you walk a fine line when you start inserting your personality in larger and looser sorts of ways and that was a that was a grand experiment for me uh, having come from the news pages did you enjoy that as a I, as a way of writing I did um, it was it was exhausting in its own way because you're kind of doing it very quickly and often and and throughout the day, and you're you're at the tender mercies of your and, and very direct mercies of your readership, um, who can be brutal uh, at times. So, uh, and you, you have to constantly. Hey, well, you're you're just always on. So, but the style of writing I thought was was really quite interesting, and I think that hyperlinks and and video and photographs lend new dimensions to any kind of narrative, even short ones, that, that you just don't get in any other kind of venue. I mean, you can, you can embed, you're literally embedding links when you use hyperlinks that kind of turn the story into, you know, a tree in a way, so that any word can kind of reach out and below the page to another narrative if the user chooses to click on it. And, and images and video interact with the text in ways that you really can't do in a, a static print page. Is that uh, something that you're considering now, Tom, when you're you're writing for the web? Um, like you wouldn't even have like a straight piece of text anymore. On the blog, yes. I mean, we still haven't gotten to the point where 
we can routinely it's very time consuming to to add the links and you can't do it the times and a lot of other places experiment with automated linking so that certain words automatically become hyperlinks that lead to other things on the site or to definitional landing pages but um it's really only on the blog that um yeah, I, when I'm writing for for a blog at the New York Times, I'm I'm definitely thinking about how um, how I can build hyperlinks and how I can build photographs or images into this to to help tell the story. And I'm often doing it on my own. I mean, where it used to be like three or four people, um, because of the the medium, you're you know kind of singularly thinking of all these things at the same time. You're juggling a lot more balls. Yes, and it yeah that that's interesting, isn't it? So something that that's a big that's a change. Yeah, and I I mean I I think it's really interesting. I don't think there's really a lot of I don't know. There's not a lot of consensus on exactly what the right way to do what the right way is to deliver information. I think the Times does it as well as anybody. But you know you have all these you suddenly have all these these media at your disposal. Um, video, sound. Um, you know, I often wonder if someday we'll have smell on online. <laughs> I mean, just because the the ability to kind of use all of your faculties while interacting with a narrative on the on the the screen is 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 pretty amazing, and it's something that you just never you wouldn't even think about really in in any kind of grand term in a newspaper or a book for that matter. Maybe that's overstating it, but yeah. No, no. Why not? Let's let's overstate some let's things overstate. anyway this afternoon. <laughs> let's make great sweeping statements about things. But it was interesting as I was reading through some of the archives of some of the articles, you know, the more um, traditional articles and, and journalism, and then um, looking at a few of the pieces from the lead. Um, for example, the the former astronaut that was dismissed yeah. after her. And I looked at one of the lines that you had written. Um, so I'm loosely quoting you here, something like, the diaper she was in as she drove toward her date with infamy. <laughs> and I thought, I bet Tom really enjoyed writing that line. And that's really remarkably different than what, you, you know, some of the other lines that you feel that's... like you... Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I think that it was, I mean, it was great fun, and it is great fun to write in that form, um, and it was very liberating in a lot of ways, too, because you you can be more conversational, and I think that there are ways to, you know, be conversational and to make attempts at being clever in ways that you couldn't do in a straight news piece that, um, but again, well, uh, the struggle always was with not not to be, you know, actually creating commentary, and I think that's a very very fine line. Like, was I was I actually adding some kind of wink of commentary to that story when I wrote that particular line you cited? I don't know. I mean, when you read it back to me now, I think, hmm, was I was I pushing the envelope there, or was it just kind of stating the obvious? Yes. <laughs> well, there is a way of arranging words where you can, you know, that that's. That's that's the mark of genius, isn't it? Where it's sort of understated, but yet that you can't really point to exactly what it is. Exactly. But the sense yeah. of it is and that's there. That's what I spent a lot of my time doing is kind of creating, you know, a space where I could be playful and use my voice, but kind of obscure. And and you do this in, even when you're writing journalistically, obscure um, any personal feelings that you may have about the story. Is is Tom is uh, thinking about? Uh, 
also because you're on Twitter as well. People can follow you on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Although so, I have to admit that I'm not very good at doing that. Well, they keeping... weren't that regular. I had a look. Yeah. But <laughs> wow, you've done your homework. No, well, just a bit. I thought I'd better if I'm talking with Mr. New York Times here, <laughs> um, which which is it's a great title. I, I like that. And um, but but so what's when when um, and people are is there still a sense of the newsroom? Because you say that people are, are writing more um, in their independent, like when they're creating what the pieces are going to look like. But well, like, like with Twitter and, and considering um, Iran and getting some of the news information from those um, people's uh, direct Twitters and tweets and, you know, what's yeah. that like in the, the newsroom? Is there still that? Is there still? Well, there, there's certainly still, a, you know, an active and vibrant and, and, I mean, dynamic New York Times newsroom and, and journalism, committing journalism is kind of <laughs> the same no matter where you're, what the medium actually is in its core elements. Um, you know, you still have people who are making phone calls, who are going to the scenes of, of, of events as they unfold, who are toiling in, in foreign bureaus, just as they always have. Um, it's just that some, now there are a myriad new ways for, for that information that they're gathering and, and the, the, the witness that they're bearing to be disseminated to, to readers well, or see, online readers. Because it does seem like newspaper people have always um, built relationships with sources. And, and so it's almost yep. as if there's a new wing of sources that as people, you, you might start relying on some people more than others or, or something. Right. Well, I mean, it's certainly true. If what, if what you're saying is, is, you know, things like Twitter and, and Facebook and so forth open up new avenues for, for making contacts or, or finding sources. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and even getting information that otherwise yeah. wouldn't be possible. It's, it's definitely true. I mean, it's, it's opened up access, particularly to, to not necessarily to newsmakers or, you know, politicians and, and the powerful, but really it's opened up a, 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 a fire hose. To, of, of interaction back and forth between ordinary people, everyday citizens, everyday consumers, um, we hear from them much more directly and much more often than we, and they often hear from us uh, in response, and they become subjects of our stories because, I mean, after all, that's they're the people really that we're we're working for. Yes, that's interesting. <laughs> I think sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, that's. The, that's true. That's very. Yeah, let's... I mean, it's really. I mean, we get. I get emails from from readers, um, you know, saying, "By the way, I read your story, um, but did you know?" Or, or I get, you know, we get comments on the blog saying, "Well, this isn't quite right. Um, this is actually the case, and it may be a scientist somewhere working out in Arizona. It may be, you know, a homeowner who has some experience with some." issue with in her local community that's that's relevant to the stuff we're covering and suddenly i mean it went it, it might have taken us a year to find that person right um but and, yet and now they volunteer accident, really or only by you know some really diligent background work but nowadays it's it's kind of much more easy to get hold of and they have the sense that they can communicate with you so in Which a I way it's important yeah. yeah yeah this is more maybe true for the the idea of the news as a medium rather than something static as you mentioned before from the old days once a day <laughs> so um yeah. this is yeah more... i mean i think that's true I, I i i think that you know 
I'm still somebody who loves to get a, a paper newspaper and yes. sit down and, and read it. And that's Amen, brother. Kind of, yeah, that's a certain kind of tactile interaction with, you know, words that I love. And I think that there are millions of people out there who still do. And that will always be the case. But the uh, online journalism and has expanded the the ways in which we, you know, deliver and receive information. And it's all good. It's all, I mean, there's room for all of it. And we're going to take a short break. Um, We're at the top of the hour here talking with Tom Zeller, Jr. When we come back, we'll hear Tom read a piece of his. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. We'll be back. I'm putting that aside in crime of a personal kind I'm about to go out of my mind I'm just about sick to death of taking breath And walking this line of mine Now folks that know what's good for them are good at ignoring them But I just can't put these thoughts down Pursued by this notion that follows me around My heart is hurting, my spirit's burdened I feel like a liar and a thief For taking air, for being here unwanted I look for my final Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Tom Zeller, Jr. Tom, welcome back. T. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And so, let's see. Let's let's have you. um, We're. Uh, in, in in the interest of not pulling an Orson Welles War of the Worlds, we won't play um, this uh, YouTube sound clip until you give us um, a, a slight introduction of, of the piece that you're going to read, uh-huh. if you don't mind. Okay. And then <laughs> if you'd like to intro it, and then we'll play the clip and, and uh, yeah. Okay. So. Well, if it's, I mean, first let me preface this by saying that Probably no journalist ever wants to read aloud anything they've ever written. This is is particular because, I mean, we don't think of our, I I mean, with the exception of some, as as stylists, really. And, you know, it's about the the information. So um, this will be a new experience for me. That's what I'm saying. Well, and maybe it's a Living Writers exclusive, then. Maybe. Once in a lifetime. Maybe. and so the, the, this particular piece I thought was interesting only because it, it really brought home for me as I was reporting it the idea that, um, that we really are seeing a kind of merger of, of and, and an expansion of the, the democratizing factor of, of the media. And by that I mean ordinary citizens who are, are 
uh, find themselves wrapped up in extraordinary events are able in ways never before to to capture the imagery of what's happening um, and to publish broadcast that information all across the world in this particular case it was 2006 um, and uh, some hostility had um, stirred up between Hezbollah in in Lebanon and uh, Israel and they were trading uh, trading missiles and and firing at, at one another for quite some time and amid all that um, some young kids um, and and not so young people began recording what they were experiencing in those places and published it on online on the web and I'm not sure which clip you have but um, and we'll, well we'll be able to hear it's the uh, Galia's clip and uh, we'll be able to hear the audio of course but not we'll be missing the the video that you could you get from uh, YouTube which I'm glad will, it was still online it, yes, yes, but but and and it'll be like a path that people are are taking, running out of a home. Basically, uh, will be yeah. the visuals yeah. that will be missing. But so so, Tom, shall we play it and then sure, we'll do the reading? Okay. Do I? I'll, I'll read when you're done. Over a decade ago, as another of the world's great ethnic tinderboxes, the former Yugoslavia, was about to catch fire, 11-year-old Zlata Filopovic of Croatia began keeping a diary. The poignancy of the journal rises in large part from Zlata's sober acclamation in latter entries to a life as it was disintegrating around her. From the concerns of a middle-class girl in 1991, school, a new pair of skis, Madonna's fan club, Zlato's journal became a diary, too, of bombs and sniper's bullets zipping through her bedroom, of food shortages and blackouts and death. Her journal was eventually published, and she was billed as a latter-day Anne Frank. But as the world gaze has turned to another ethnic and religious calamity, this time between Israel and militants in Lebanon, a question that almost immediately arises is just what Zlata Filopovic, or even Anne Frank, might have made of YouTube.com. That's where Galia Daub, a 15-year-old from Haifa, Israel, uploaded a jittery first-person video clip last week, made as she ran through her home rushed down whitewashed staircases and blurred her way from room to room toward the family's bomb shelter. Hezbollah, the Lebanon-based militant group that set off a furious air and artillery assault from Israel on July 12th by crossing the border and kidnapping two Israeli soldiers, was raining missiles on its, of its own on Galia's seaside city, where she was enjoying summer break between her freshman and sophomore years of high school. A civil air raid siren can be heard in the background. I was home alone with my mom during the alarm, Galia wrote to me in an email message. She has since fled Haifa to stay with her brother in Tel Aviv. Since my camera was right next to me, I made a short clip of my running down to the shelter. Once I saw the clip, I decided to post it online so people could get a glimpse of what we go through when we're under attack. Call it an entry in the diary of Galia Daub, for whom... The self-generated distillation of daily life online is, after all, 
as it is for most people her age, a given. We don't really have a chance to speak our minds and share our thoughts on TV and in newspapers, she said. From the ravaged parts of Lebanon, meanwhile, several young scribes have been documenting Israel's relentless pounding from their point of view in English-language blogs. Six blasts in the past ten minutes made this building rock, wrote Mana, a diarist blogging from Beirut on July 15th. The sound of the jets is so faint, I don't think they're very close. An hour later, she wrote, I don't want to become a refugee. Another Lebanese blogger, using the screen name Think Ployd, delivers regular dispatches from the streets of the country's capital city. In a phone conversation, the 24-year-old who works as a human-computer interaction specialist said he preferred not to use his real name because, quote, this country has quite the history for these kinds of events, he said, and the less you give away about yourself, the more you feel like you can stick around when it's all over. Like the Diary of Zlata, Blogging Beirut.com has evolved from a carefree hobby blog to an embattled and embittered document of life irrevocably changed by war. This blog is about the Lebanon that is never in the news, Fink Floyd wrote 18 months ago. Culture, environment, human rights, heritage, places, people, events, and lots of photography. More than a year of entries followed with posts and images covering Lebanon's vibrant nightlife, gorgeous landscapes, and the best places to go swimming. Then came the Israeli bombs. Here we go again, he wrote on July 16th. More bombings, less sleep, and yet another drained battery. I wonder if they'll ever invent candle-powered computers. Now he roams the country snapping pictures of exploding buildings, fleeing foreigners, garbage piling up as essential services are cut, and even dissonant signs of normal life amid the chaos. Fruit for sale, smiling locals, defiant nightlife. There's no getting around the outrage at bloggingbeirut.com. Israel, he and many commenters suggest, has gone too far in its attacks, punishing and killing scores of innocent civilians in retaliation against Hezbollah. The site's author, however, said he was frustrated by the actors on both sides. Both have their agendas, he said, and both will carry them out at whatever the cost. Just 80 miles to his south, his cynicism is shared by 23-year-old Yuval Kantor. And it, as Hezbollah missiles rained down on Haifa, Mr. Cantor, along with his 12-year-old brother, Ayal, huddled in an inner corridor of their home. Mr. Cantor picked up his digital camera, shot some clips, and posted them to YouTube. In one, Ayal jokingly fakes the sound of an explosion. Don't do that, his older brother admonishes. Okay, it's, a, it's over, Mom, Ayal tells his mother, who can be seen lying on the floor, a pillow pulled down hard against her head and ears. It's not over, she replies, and a few seconds later she's proved right. The low boom of a missile strike can be heard. Oh, God, that was close, she said. Ayal gazes beyond the camera, and his smile fades. Mr. Cantor, a student at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, wrote in an email message that his mother had since taken his brother south, out of Haifa, and presumably out of the reach of Hezbollah's missiles. He has remained behind in Haifa while on summer break to watch the house. And he said he posted the videos online because he wanted friends and family to see what was going on, to show them my reality, he said. That reality, Mr. Cantor suggested, appears increasingly bleak, despite all the technological aids human beings have developed for, developed for facilitating communication, the flow of information, and access to each other's lives, despite the Internet, blogs, and YouTube. We tried to live together in one country and failed, Mr. Cantor wrote. We tried reaching peace based on two states for two people and failed. We tried to withdraw and close ourselves behind the walls and failed. Frankly, I'm losing hope. Perhaps we just have to get used to living in a war.
Thank you, Tom. Thanks for thanks for reading that. So much power. That was terribly long. It was <laughs> it was long. So now you also have had to read longer than anyone else has ever had yes. to read on yes. Living Writers too. Anyway. Oh, but, but I th- think even reading you. that now, I really feel like it captures. And I, it, it, it kind of was a moment for me when I realized how powerful the you know the the web had become as a, as a storytelling tool. And, and were you so were you emailing with these people directly uh, yeah. as to follow up on the story? Well, I was emailing with them. I saw the video on YouTube, and I, I tracked down a person who had created it. And is, yeah, I made made is, contact with them. So it was your story idea from seeing that clip. Is that how it? How did this? How did this article come to be? It was from that. It was from seeing people kind of posting, you know, their own kind of shaky video from on the ground, which nowadays we kind of take for granted. But at the time, um, it was it was sort of rather new. It was and, back in July of 2006 then. Yeah, not that long ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, so I was kind of struck by not only the fact that they were they were getting posted. I mean, we just saw this again in Iran with all the protests, right? Just just this summer. Yes. Um, but yeah, I was struck by the fact that these that these young people who kind of were seeing past the the bigotries that kind of govern the the, the politics and the the fighting going on above their heads. Um, they they see beyond that and they they feel rather helpless and they're sharing that sense of of, of kind of dread online and to, to to millions of people. And and then there's then the chance that the the people who are on the other side from where either the bombs are being launched or where they're landing yep. then get to see these posts from the young people there who feel yeah, powerless. I, it, it, it is a way, I think it has a, a kind of humanizing factor, and it's a, it's a way for people on opposite sides of, of some political divide to get a glimpse of each other in ways that didn't exist before. I think it's interesting um, not to... It, it, to talk about for a style moment with the article, how the the title is Anne Frank 2006 War Diaries Online. Um, and then your final line is actually um, the words of Mr. Cantor. Um, but in it, he also uses the word, frankly, I'm losing hope. Um, and so yeah. that, that's the, that was a nice moment too. not something that hits you over the head, um, but something there none, nonetheless. A little bit of Anne, frankly, is that what you're suggesting? I am. I am. <laughs> is everyone wincing now? Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, maybe it's time to take a break. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, you've been listening so far to a, a wonderful piece uh, by writer Tom Zeller, Jr., um, Anne Frank, 2006, War Diaries Online. Tom is an editor and writer for The New York Times. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Tom Zeller Jr. is on the program. Um, I'd like to say thanks to Alex Bellhodge for um, engineering in his marvelous fashion. And um, and next week, uh, remember to tune back in for Juan Cole will be joining us, his book, Engaging the Muslim World. Um, Tom. Hey. So we're we're actually winding down now. Sadly, yeah, that's crazy. It's too bad it goes we don't. Goes by so quick. Does does it? Okay. Well, too bad yeah. we don't have a bit more time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how how has um, becoming an editor changed your writing life? Uh, hmm. You know, it's. I'm not sure. I mean, I've always kind of been editing um, at different parts of my career. Early on, I was. I was editing at the uh, the Week in Review section, which appears on Sundays, um, and that was a great experience. I think that probably contributed more to to my, uh, I guess, the development development of my writing style than anything else, because I got to read and work with reporters from all over the newsroom. Um, and then, so, then you can see what's really working and what needs to be tightened yeah, up. And, and I think, you know, on some level, some of it is, is subjective. Um, and, you know, but there, but there is, it, it was instructive for me to, to watch different writers um, and reporters work through their stories. I mean, everybody has different strengths. There, there are plenty of, there are lots of wonderful writers at the New York Times, um, and there are lots of great reporters. Sometimes you get a person who is both, uh, a great reporter and a wonderful writer. They're a rarer beast, Ooh. I think. Oh. Um, and, but not that, you know, I mean, everybody is competent, but um, some people are just really amazing reporters. They can dig up information that you just can't believe where it came from, but aren't necessarily the strongest writers. And then we have some really lovely writers who um, sometimes need to be asked to kind of go back, you know, two or three times to keep digging for, for information. Um and I, I mean, and I think all of us kind of fall on a scale um, or on a gradation um, between those poles. Um, but it, it, it is, you know, as an editor, you get a, a really clear view of, of that. Um, whereas just a writer, you're kind of only aware of how your own words are being torn apart by your editor. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, huh? <laughs> so you're trying to say editors are not devils. <laughs> no, they're often helping hands. No, I definitely. Think they, you know, in the best, I think a good editor kind of comes to a piece not wanting to do a damn thing. I mean, really, I, I think that's the best qualification for an editor is someone who actually is kind of lazy and doesn't want to do anything. <laughs> so, and by that I mean approaching a piece of, of prose, recognizing that this is somebody, someone's words that they worked on. And in a best-case scenario, you'd like to not touch a thing. Now, you know, most of the time, that's that's not really possible. And I think most writers are glad for the kind of help that they get from a, a good editor. Right, right, right. Are you but, so? So you gave us a sort of a little bit of an insight into how you you wrote the story Anne Frank 2006 War Diaries online, Tom. But how? What's the? What's your method now? How are you? Um, are you still? Are you out there searching for what your ideas are? Um, are other people um, sending them to you, like uh, from like the the meetings, the the weekly New York Times meetings, or how how does it work? Um, it's, I guess it's kind of all over the place. I mean, I, most of the writing I'm doing now, I, I, I write a, a weekly column uh, that appears both online and, and in the International Herald Tribune, which is our global 
edition. Yes. Um, dealing with the world of, of alternative energy, of, of green business, of um, everything that kind of falls under that rubric, environmental politics and so forth. So nowadays, I guess I'm, uh, you know, I'm reading a lot. And and I'm also editing the, the Green Inc. blog, which helps me to kind of stay abreast with the help of all of our contributors to it. I read all of their copy, and so that's kind of informing me as to what's going on. I'm often on the phone talking to sources from various environmental groups, from companies. Uh, I'm constantly getting emails from from PR agencies and from, from company representatives telling me of this development or that, from from... Uh, members of Congress and their staffs um, regarding legislation. So all of that is constantly going on, and I, I read the newspapers, and I, I watch television, I listen to the radio, and, and yeah, I just kind of hunt around for something that I think I can, A, you know, kind of get a handle on quickly, and, and B, that I actually have some, you know, some interest in and something that I think that I want to, Say. So your your method of this is is pretty like you're you're always obviously accumulating knowledge in your in your life. That's that seems to be the kind of person you you are just naturally. But um but the pacing of this is so quick versus perhaps your time at uh, National Geographic uh, magazine. Um, right. With... Yeah, that was a completely different. Um... I, I should also say that, you know, it, and, and my wife will attest to this, that I'm often panicking on Thursday nights uh, trying to figure out what the heck I'm going to write about for this week's column. So it doesn't always, I'm not really always <laughs> prepared. Um, and, you know, I'm often kind of scrambling on Friday to, to put things together. Thank but, you for that confession. Uh, <laughs> it's very Catholic. Uh, I didn't want to make it sound like I have it all together. Um, the... Uh, but yeah, it's completely different from National Geographic, which was, you know, a wonderful experience um, and um, and an amazing kind of. Uh, it's an amazingly different kind of place to work than a newspaper. Um, you have generous amounts of time to work on stories, um, and the world is kind of at your disposal. Um, and and I, I I only spent maybe I think a year and a half there. It just wasn't the, all that time. I didn't know what to do with having come from newspapers for ten years. It was uh, my journalistic metabolism just wasn't suited to it. it. But how interesting the world at your disposal. Yeah. No. I mean, there's there's certainly um, National Geographic covers you know all the polls and everything in between. And, <laughs> Literally. And they, and, and they spend and they have an enormous budget and they they spend a good deal of money kind of spending, uh, sending photographers on site um, and letting them stay there for as long as is necessary to kind of get the, get the shot. I mean, I'm sure they're, they're doing some belt tightening, um, as all of us are. But generally speaking, I mean, they do have the luxury of time. They only publish 12 times a year and within each issue a handful of stories. So they can afford to send to send folks around and really kind of get immersed in in the culture that's being covered. So it's an amazing thing. I just think I'm too spastic for that. (laughs) (laughs) My attention span is just, you know, too jittery. So it worked out, though, that the New York Times had this this idea with with Green Inc. was coming up and and they knew you'd be the man for the job, the perfect person. Well, I don't know if that's, you know, 
entirely the case, but I certainly was willing. So, <laughs> <laughs> what what are some of the what what are some of the stories that whether you knew it at the time or not, Tom, affected you the most? Um, you mean in, over my entire career, or 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 maybe we'll just say what comes to you now, because that's kind of you just mentioned ten years. That's a lot of time to sort of scan back. But is there something like a few moments or stories? Um, um there's there's been some you know kind of really pointed moments. I mean, I don't know if they would be stories that I would say I you know. That, that I would consider my best work, but but certainly being involved in um, the coverage as part of the new the New York Times, I, there have been a lot of very humbling moments for which I was very proud of us as a as a, as a newspaper. Nine Eleven being one of the most um, yes prominent examples. I mean, being there and working at the New York Times when this thing happened um, to New York City was um, yeah, it was a very it was, it was tragic, obviously, but it was also very humbling to see how these these great journalists, who I, I think it's fair to say are, are the, the, the a collection of the best journalists on the planet, came together to kind of suss what happened and cover it relentlessly. And they won seven, seven Pulitzer Prizes for it. So that was a great experience, um, even though the, the subject matter was... Um, a, a horror, yes. A horror of, yeah. Um, but... Uh, you know, and and other stories kind of jump out. I, I mean, these all sound like horrible tragedies, but I was out covering the Columbine yes. um, shootings when those happened, and that was like shortly after I joined the team. And I was I was working for the graphics desk at the time, kind of going to help try to map out um, for a diagram like what actually had gone down. But um, that was kind of a, a very that sticks in my mind as as something that I I think I learned a lot about what this job entails. Um, even though I, I really didn't write about it, but um, it's informed everything. It just the the nature of your work. Yeah, and you know the the, the kind of import that um, detail takes in, in telling these stories and getting you know we. It's kind of a cliche to say that we're writing the first draft of history uh, within the industry, but I think it's true. And so you really endeavor to get everything right and. Um, yeah, so it's stories like that when you when you really feel the the the, the onus and the honor of of what it is you're doing. That that's and that's a beautiful thing, Tom Zeller. Um, perhaps on perhaps you'll have on deck a, a, a story about bocce coming up for the summer, like something I'd a little love to do something a little lighter. On bocce. I I have I, I have it on good information that you are a bocce fan. Yes, yes. Yeah. And quite good at bocce. Well, depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> and and if there's um streams, river, like different water obstacles involved, doesn't it? That's true, yes. Tom, People have no idea what we're talking about right now. Thank you, but thank you so much for joining sure. us today. And maybe maybe you can come back and and talk about a few more of these stories because um it's it's been a, a great afternoon and I thank you for for joining us today on Living Writers. It was my pleasure, T. Thanks. Well, we'll talk soon. And and to everyone out there for streaming and and listening in Ann Arbor. Um, Join us again next week. You've been hearing Tom Zeller Jr., writer and editor for the New York Times uh, today. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, July 8th, 2009. From Bogota, Colombia, I'm Manuel Rueda. Coming up in today's program, the world's third largest democracy awaits presidential election results. In Aquila, Italy, the eight richest countries discuss solutions to the global economic crisis. And we take a closer look at the fight for gay rights in the U.S. military. All these stories and more after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. Honduran leaders have agreed to mediation to resolve the current political crisis facing the country. Talks will begin tomorrow between democratically elected President Manuel Zelaya and the de facto president, Roberto Micheletti. He was installed by the military.